welcome to this podcast of the New York City Bar Association. In this episode, Making It Work, the in-house outside litigation council dynamic with Bayer. Christina Lewicki, a member of the City Bar's litigation committee, speaks with Bill Dodero, global head of litigation at Bayer, and Jonathan Cohn, partner at Sidley Austin. They discuss the value of outside counsel who are relentlessly selfless, resolute, and solutions-oriented strategists and who produce efficient wins. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. Here's Christina Lewicki. Welcome to Making It Work, the in-house outside litigation counsel dynamic. I'm Christina Lewicki, the host and a member of the New York City Bar Association's litigation committee. This podcast is part of a series that brings together leading in-house litigation attorneys and their external counsel for a closer look at what makes their partnerships successful. Today's episode features the litigation team representing Bear, Bill Dodero and John Cohn. Bill Dodero is the global head of litigation at Bear. In this role, he is responsible for overseeing all litigation matters affecting Bear's various businesses. Bill began his practice at the law firm of O'Connor, Kahn, Dillon, and Barr in San Francisco, California, working almost exclusively on Bear matters. In 2002, Bill left private practice and began his career at Bear, starting in the litigation group. Since that time, he has had various responsibilities in both litigation and non-litigation roles, including various roles in Bayer's pharmaceutical and consumer health businesses. John Cohn is a member of Sidley Austin's complex commercial litigation practice and has argued cases in the U.S. Supreme Court, the federal courts of appeals, federal district courts, and various state courts. Both a trial lawyer and an appellate authority, John has successfully represented clients in a wide range of disputes, including cases involving false advertising, products liability, preemption, and class actions. A former DOJ official, he is also an expert in government litigation with notable victories against his former agency and the Federal Trade Commission. I'm very pleased to have both of you on this podcast. When I hear the word bear, I immediately think aspirin. But you really don't need to go beyond Bear's website to realize that the company is about so much more. For example, Bear has established an innovation initiative that amounts to nothing less than conquering 10 enormous challenges facing humanity across healthcare and agriculture. Bill, what is it like to be a steward of an iconic global life sciences company? Well, hi, Christina. Thank you so much. And thanks for having uh, both of us on the podcast today. And importantly, let me also thank you for recognizing Bayer in the way you just have. And it's certainly a lofty ambition, and I appreciate the lofty credit you delivered, but it's really not at all me. There are many tens of thousands of people I work with every day living the mission you just described, and perhaps best summed up as health for all, hunger for none. And we really take that to heart in everything we do, and it's a rather inspiring uh, motivating factor to come to work every day with that as our mission. And, you know, every day I see the consistent efforts of everyone I work with in that regard. And it's what inspired me to come in-house and work at Bayer, uh, seeing firsthand the efforts of people doing the lofty things you've just described, being uh, criticized or questioned in litigation or legal proceedings was a real motivating factor for driving me to move from an outside lawyer role to uh, an in-house lawyer role and work closely with such amazing people. And, you know, in my current role, 
I actually depend on those colleagues even more than before, uh, not only to defend our iconic company through those colleagues, but in litigation to fuel the reason for just loving my job and what I do every day. And I kind of view it that, and I'm sure you'll hear more from John and me in this regard throughout the podcast, that it's our job as advocates uh, to basically bring forward all of what I've just described into adversarial proceedings and give the best foot forward uh, representing the great work uh, my colleagues uh, or the world over do. And so uh, it's really a joint effort and I, I appreciate you recognizing us in that regard. It's very distinctive that you had the experience of representing Bear as outside counsel before you moved to an in-house position at the company. Did going in-house require a shift in perspective? Yeah, I think it's one that takes into account a broad range of objectives. And I think if I was reflecting in preparing for today's podcast, uh, through our discussions, when you're working perhaps as an external lawyer, you have a rather narrower remit, win the case, uh, take care of the one or multiple threats in the context of a litigation. And coming in-house, you really have a much broader group of stakeholders who are looking at the company with a range of concerns or considerations or needs or desires. The stakeholders from customers, consumers, uh, government entities, uh, our sustainability objectives, our just overall desire to be a contributor to key concerns in both healthcare and the environment. And so suddenly you show up for work on day one after being uh, an external lawyer, kind of spending your time on the win or the pleadings before you, and an entire world of considerations is now laid at your uh, lap or on your desk that you didn't really think about before. And it kind of just grows like concentric circles getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And over the couple of decades I've had the pleasure of working for Bayer, it's really well informed me to do each of those things better. But it's really quite amazing how the perspective just grows by leaps and bounds each and every day across those variables. That expanding perspective comes with its own challenges, doesn't it? I think it's really the ability to kind of harness a broad range of professionals. And, and I know we'll talk about uh, my work and our role with uh, Sibley and John Cohn in particular in a moment, but also the team of amazing professionals I work with in many different functional areas. Obviously, first and foremost, the litigation group colleagues who are all stellar professionals in their own regard, but then also being able to have that broader perspective and kind of stitch together the competing considerations of many uh, colleagues in medical or regulatory or scientific development or uh, IP or advertising and promotion. Everybody presents with kind of a very unique focus that is really a piece of a big puzzle that lets a big company like Bayer do the things that it does for the benefit of humanity. And one of the things that I think has been most uh, both rewarding and, and a, a challenging uh, evolution in my own career is how do you get all of that to work and row in the same direction? And one of the things I learned um, is when we do do that and when we get on the same page together, the outcomes are so much the better. I've been so wonderfully informed by functions and roles in the company that I never thought would inform my legal analysis or that I never thought had something to do with 
what we're doing from a legal perspective. And I've been uh, eyes wide open or made so aware of things that actually enhanced, but never thought they would, what we do from a legal perspective, what's truly meaningful to somebody who's protecting uh, an invention, of course, what's very meaningful to protect uh, the space and the care and concern that our colleagues engage in when we bring a product to market and it gets criticized that we didn't follow appropriate rules or promotional standards or have the right scientific evidence to make those claims. Now it's suddenly not just a legal issue. This is the dedication of many who've spent uh, tireless days, weeks, hours, months uh, perfecting this thing that we want to deliver and take care of people with. And suddenly it's questioned. And so bringing to bear all of those collective efforts to not just win or defend, but instead to really actually uh, protect that collective effort is uh, something that's both uh, rewarding and was at first a challenge. And now I really recognize how much it well informs and brings together the best of the best in us as a company and the best in the best of us in our litigation and legal team efforts. So we'll get back to addressing the differences between representing Bear both as in-house and as outside counsel later in the podcast. Now I'd like to ask both of you for some practical advice in navigating in-house outside counsel collaborations. What tips do you have for a litigator building a lasting relationship with a corporate client? Yeah, sure. And I can start off and then, and then Bill can grab the baton. Um, but before I do, Christine, I just wanted to thank you for having me on this podcast as well. I'm proud to represent Bayer and equally proud to be on this podcast with Bill Dodaro, who is a friend and a fantastic litigator, but at the forefront of strategic legal thought in the life sciences industry. Turning to your question about tips for lasting relationships, look, it doesn't happen overnight. And in my view, there's no magic formula. I often chuckle at the senior partners who try to script out practice development, teaching young attorneys exactly what they're supposed to do. In my experience, there is no formulaic recipe for doing it. But I do think that there is, we'll call it the irreducible minimum of loyalty, responsiveness, and of course, winning. Winning matters, right? In this day and age, we try to sugarcoat things and say everyone's a winner, but at least in law and litigation, winning matters. It's important to win. And you might not be able to win all the time, but you have to try to win more than the next guy. Um, look, I'd like to say that it is my charming personality that hooked Bill on day one, but I suspect the reality is that the repeated victories from my firm, my team on various products ranging from probiotics to multivitamins to medical devices has mattered more than my personality or any other adjective or element I can point to. Well, and, and I'll just jump in, of course, and, and of, I can't leave alone, of course, the charming personality aspect. Of course, you had me at hello, John. Um, but, you know, on top of that, I would just reflect, and John's right, it, it, it certainly results. We need to deliver results, and that's not ever a guarantee in the messy world of litigation. And so what can I kind of give in terms of maybe two very discrete uh, additional points for your audience to consider in terms of building that lasting relationship, because uh, there's other things along the way that I think really uh, help to engender and grow those relationships as well. And so one is 
being relentlessly selfless. And John and his team uh, do that and do that for our joint effort of Bayer's interests. And I'll give kind of a quick example where, you know, we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about this a little bit later as well, but we have the luxury of working with the best of the best of law firms. And we oftentimes bring them together to handle large matters. And in just one example of John's selflessness, which evidences a great attribute that serves to certainly foster a long-lasting relationship, is doing what's best for the case, even if he's doing it in service of and for others. And I'll just give a quick example where John, uh, in an example where another firm had the trial, it was John who went in and took the deposition of one of plaintiff's key experts, delivered a blistering cross, which provided a huge foundation for winning the case that he wasn't even going to try. And when you see that kind of devotion, loyalty, and skill, of course, you got to have the skill, John, not just the winning personality. Uh, It really serves to grow that relationship. And it really serves to make a firm a go-to firm or a lawyer, a go-to lawyer in building that relationship. Secondly, one other point I'd recommend or share with your listeners, it's not wavering from early assessments or recommendations. It's being firm, it's being tough. And a lot of times you'll hear stories of a lawyer who initially or an early assessment that says, this is a case, it's winnable, We need to try it. We need to go win it. And as the date gets closer, suddenly things change. Now, do things change because things change and evidence changes? Of course. But one of the things that uh, John, and uh, quite frankly, we expect this of all of our counsel, does really well is we make an assessment of the case and we stick with it. And we do not pull the rug out from our Uh, assessment of what we're going to do with the case in terms of resolution or defense, barring a monumental change. Obviously, things do change, but it's only in that instance. And we have done that. We've said to ourselves and with the benefit of John's counsel, this is a case that we settle and we do it. This is a case that we try and we can win it and we do and we've won. So I think it's really important as your listeners build a relationship with a corporate client to give that strong foundation for the in-house lawyer to not feel as though the ground is going to be moving under them after we collectively make some pretty important decisions and then have to go back and second guess or undo those decisions. There's always, again, times for good reason that that might have to be done, but by and large, it shouldn't happen. So I would point out those two additional factors and compliment John for doing them really well. Any insights on how you make those pretty important decisions you just referenced, those strategic calls? John, you want to go first again? Uh, look, okay. um, I mean, you're, you're much more adept than I am because in the end, the big decisions are yours. All, all I can do is give you my advice for a little that's worth, hopefully worth more sometimes than others. But I think you just have to have the courage of your convictions. You can't change your view just because you have one adverse ruling. Look, you got to be realistic. I mean, if the adverse ruling does dramatically change the legal landscape, you got to take that into account. But too often, people just try to hug the middle, and they're not going to stand by their original view, even if nothing meaningful has changed. Yeah, and I would just add on top of that that you know we do get together and we make those 
strategic decisions. And here's where I really want to compliment Christina. Uh, the in-house lawyers I work with, again, a very tremendously accomplished trial counsel in their own right, because you have to have been in the chair to understand the nuance to the multiple uh, elements of, of a big strategic call. Uh, reading it on paper or just regurgitating what um, an outside lawyer sends us is not at all how we define ourselves internally. And I'm really proud to work with a bunch of amazing professionals who do that. And it goes back to maybe what I said a moment ago with, we have a complete partnership. We anchor ourselves in a joint strategy uh, work with John and his team in this example and other of our outside counsel. And, you know, certainly while I'm accountable to make those calls, they're not without the expertise and input of multiple learned professionals. And there's not a secret weapon there as well. It's relying on the collective input. It's getting into the nitty gritty. It's getting a full understanding from the team on the ground about what's going on. It's getting realistic assessments of what we think we can accomplish in a given case. And then, as I mentioned earlier, it's sticking with that, even in the face of adversity or dark moments, because there's always ups and downs. And that's what we take as a team into account. And when the downs happen, we huddle back together and make ourselves even stronger, reaffirm the strategy call we made, make adjustments if necessary, and keep moving forward. And that's a really important piece uh, of having fortitude in the face of all of that. And I'll close on this point. When we do that, having the backing of management and being very clear with management about the risks uh, of that strategic call, because you cannot always predict what's going to happen in a litigation, in a trial, in an arbitration and the like, but being very clear about what those various risks and or outcomes might be and getting management buy-in. So you have the freedom to kind of go uh, fight that fight is another important element of what we do. And that's where, again, we partner as an inside and outside team to give a very frank, open discussion. So there's full awareness. So if something does happen along the way, as you know, everything comes out quickly or in the media or in social media, you got to have people prepared for those times when there's ups and downs and getting your management updated and in your corner, so to speak, throughout those periods is another real important element where we partner to do that together. You mentioned the importance of fortitude and having the freedom to fight the fight. Those words create imagery of a war story. Can you share one standout example from your successes? Yeah, certainly. I'll kick things off. This is a war <laughs> and I fought together and it concerns Philips Colon Health. It's a probiotic, one of the best on the market. It's been around for years and the government attacked it. The Federal Trade Commission, which is perhaps my least favorite agency in the federal government, and I have a long list, but that's at the top. The FTC attempted to impose brand new requirements for substantiating dietary supplement claims, probiotics or dietary supplements. So the FTC wanted to impose a brand new standard, and it demanded from Bayer tens of millions of dollars for allegedly violating these newfangled requirements. So look, I mean, it was a lot of money. We were not inclined to settle for that amount, um, but we had a mediation, a court ordered mediation. And at the mediation, the mediator, a former judge told us, look Bill in the eye and said, I would be shocked if the federal judge, who's a friend of mine, 
did not find you guys in contempt. He's going to find a violation. I'd be shocked, shocked if he did not find a violation. So that, of course, can set you back on your heels. But as Bill was explaining earlier, you know, we fully vet all these issues. We assess the risk. It is a collaborative exercise with Bill and his team. And we were aware of all the risks and all the pros and cons. And just hearing a mediator whose job it is to push you towards the middle, start scaring us. That was not going to change Bill's position on this. Bill has courage. He demonstrated his courage in that case and many others. And Bill had the courage to fight the government despite the mediator's recommendation. And guess what? We won. We crushed them. We destroyed the government. It wasn't even close. The judge found no violation and actually held the agency was applying an unlawful legal standard. That, I think, is my favorite war story with Bill. (laughs) I can understand why. Well, well, and John is, you know, to be applauded for exactly what you just heard, which is, you know, about the strongest advocacy money can buy. And, And I think I would just add another couple of elements to it. And, you know, that is, and he touched on this, the joint effort. Uh, with the litigation team internally and John's team and the management support piece we talked about, the unwavering initial assessment that quite frankly is the, is the fuel for that courage that he rec- just uh, referenced. You don't just have courage in, in the face of, uh, or built on nothing. It's got to be well-informed. It's got to be thoughtful. It's got to be documented. It's got to be carefully considered and, and pressure tested, quite frankly. And we did all of that. And I mentioned also our management uh, getting behind us to take the bold move of taking a case like that with the setup John described to trial. And I guess I would just really focus on one more element of kind of the war story theme that you rose when I describe it. And, you know, here as well, it goes back to what I said at the beginning of the uh, um, uh, podcast about kind of what fuels me and the great people I work with in support of Bayer and the healthcare mission we hold dear. And here you had uh, a number of professionals in regulatory, in medical, and also colleagues of mine in the legal group who carefully uh, vetted the products, who carefully formulated them, who carefully considered the obligations to market and advertise the products and their health benefits that John described were being questioned. And I viewed it, again, as not just defending or winning that case or the risk of what would happen in that singular product, but here, the integrity and the efforts of all of those people I've just described over many, many years, applying their daily best efforts. And so walking in to this kind of setting, it's it's so much broader. And quite frankly, it helps to fuel as well that courage we discussed because at stake is the collective efforts of people I admire. I spend time with every day. I see toiling over doing what we do for the benefit of our customers. And so it makes me really proud to reflect on that war story. But beyond the war story is really what it meant for the outcome, of course, in the litigation, of course, from a money perspective and a product perspective, but really what it means to the people I work with every day. The government was just so overconfident in its position when it was making its demands for the tens of millions of dollars. And I said, and I'll paraphrase just because we're with a polite company here, but I explained to them that I could, let's say, drop a bucket of mud on the judge's desk and he still was not going to ring us up for the tens of millions of dollars that they were demanding. 
in the end, it's my favorite success story because Bill made the right call. And the agency's approach to regulating dietary supplements, quite frankly, has never been the same ever since. They changed their standards because of that case. And we also showed other companies in other industries that they can and should fight the Federal Trade Commission when it gets out of its lane. So that's my favorite story. But I want to just turn very quickly to, we'll just say collectively, um, other successes of which I'm very proud um, in my collaboration with Bill. And I'm talking to the numerous, countless consumer class actions that Bayer's threatened with on a regular basis. Bayer's inundated with demand letters from the plaintiff's bar saying that this or that or some other claim is misleading. And of course, none of the claims are misleading, but they get all these demands. And what we've done, and this has taken a lot of effort over time, but what we've done is we've shown that we're not going to be paying money to people who have meritless claims. And oftentimes we fend off these consumer class actions even before a case is filed. Um, and when we can do that, when we can convince the plaintiff's lawyer to stand down without suing, that to me is a real win because Bayer doesn't have to pay the, the expense of litigating this case to trial or to summary judgment or through discovery. So that's the real win. And I'm perhaps equally proud of those victories. Yeah, you know, John, I, I think that's a good point. And I'll, I'll jump in on kind of both themes that you touched on. And, you know, let me just say, I, because we're, of course, reflecting because you asked us to in kind of a war story format. But I rather like that we respect and engage with adversaries, as John just described it, in a way that I'll describe perhaps more gently, and certainly as regulated industry. Of course, we respect very much the role of regulated industry. Um, when we talk about the Phillips Colon Health win, it's not in some way thumbing our nose at the regulatory scheme. It's just we worked very hard to comply with it. And when it's uh, the case that we're accused of not having complied with it and kind of impugning the collective efforts I described earlier, and you heard the story of the trial, but you know, make no mistake, we very much respect our role as regulated industry. We very much engage as appropriate with the regulators and we do our level best, obviously, to comply at all times and bring forward products that are helping our customers. And I think, you know, when we can do that, even in an adversarial context, and when John, as he just described, has an engagement with a plaintiff's lawyer and shows them the error of their thinking in a rather vigorous demand letter, and it never materializes any further. Certainly, it doesn't have the headlining features of our earlier discussed uh, war stories, but that's pretty amazing too. And I think recognizing that we should be mindful of those engagements. We should exercise appropriate thinking in them. We should bring forward our uh, view of the world, not be shy about it, be transparent when, when we can to share that information. And, and John has done that. And then the case never materializes. Well, that's a win right out of the gates. And it didn't take going all the way to the kind of war story piece that we had fun describing a few moments ago. And I have to say, those successes are just as important as the ones that read a little more lofty in a headline or sound a little sexier in a soundbite, because they're all coming inbound, as John described, to the company, and they're all important to us. And quite frankly, 
we don't want people believing our products are non-compliant or not uh, doing what our scientists have shown they do do. And so when we can erase that impression and do it even efficiently, I, I agree with John. Those are, again, maybe not quite as front news, front page news grabbing, but they're equally as fulfilling. And I just thought of that, John, during your discussion. So thanks. What do you enjoy most about working together? As you probably get, look, we can speak truthfully and candidly to each other. Um, in the end, Bill doesn't agree with everything I say, nor should he, right? I mean, the way I often tell my colleagues, I might have like 10 ideas a day and one might be brilliant and the other nine are either terrible or sanctionable, right? So um, you're supposed to disagree with me and, and try to find the one idea that that's the, the good one. Um, look, Bill's okay with hearing disagreement um, and working through issues. And that's why it's so fun to work with him. I mean, look, in the end, Bill makes the final call. We all know that. We all respect that. But we have a respect, respectful collegial discussion, um, both my colleagues and I, and then Bill's colleagues, his team, his lawyers, and everyone else at Bayer. We have a full discussion. And in the end, the boss makes the call. But it's really enjoyable to have that analytical, intellectual approach to significant issues. And, you know, so there's that, and that's a big part of it. But also, as you can tell, Bill's just a great guy and it's fun hanging out with him. It's fun talking with him, having a drink together, having dinner together. And when you're going to have, and all of this, you know, good sense of humor. Look, if you're going to be in battle, as we have, you're going to be in the trenches with someone, you want someone like Bill, who's not just sharp and brilliant, but also just a great guy to be with. Well, John, hard to, hard to follow. So thank you for that uh, great dose of compliment. But you know what? We do have fun together, and I think you have to. And I think we have to challenge each other. This is serious business, and we don't ever forget that. But when we can maintain our sense of humor, uh, share some fun, build the chemistry that John described, you go through some pretty... Uh, heavy-duty stuff when you're in the foxhole together. And certainly there's a seriousness to what goes on, but you have to be able to get the stress out. You have to be able to relate to each other. You have to be able to depend on each other. And so kind of building that chemistry, we have to have some fun. We have to push each other. Um, John knows that when I suggest something I absolutely positively do not want a sugar-coated yes man response. If it's a bad idea, I rather it be said that's a horrible idea. Why? Because it means we're communicating the way we should. We have the courage of that communication flow. And if he says it's a horrible idea, he better be coming up next with the great idea. And so either way, we're going to get to where we need to be. And I am all too pleased when that happens. And it also needs to be exhibited, not just with me, because I have the pleasure of, at least on paper or in some corporate structure, being the leader. And I hope I exhibit that with my team as well every day. It's also with my team and great colleagues, as I mentioned earlier, who engage in this activity. And we have to have this very open exchange. It can't be people just saying what they need to hear or being uh, ego stroked because they occupy some position in the hierarchy. The good ideas have to come from every and anywhere. And we'll assemble with John's team made up of amazing professionals at all levels. And it's amazing that the ideas 
oftentimes don't come from the most senior person in the world because they're not as close to everything going on. And so it's having the courage to be selfless. It's crafting those uh, fun moments together. And I think just hanging out and spending time and certainly when we win as John is duty bound to do uh, all the time, I might add, uh, it makes it all the more fun. So we do enjoy each other on top of it. Both of you mentioned candor. Is a relationship of candor and by extension, a relationship of trust difficult to achieve between the company's in-house and outside litigation counsel? Uh, the colleagues and special professionals I mentioned I work with internally, we couldn't possibly cover the landscape of litigation uh, ourselves on a hands-on basis. It's too big. So we absolutely have to rely, and I suspect a lot of your listeners have to rely on or themselves serve clients in that role. And it's got to be a relentless, open discussion, uh, sharing all of the benefits, all of the risks, uh, getting ego off the table, and we utilize the strategic input of our outside counsel in just that manner. We want the good, the bad, the ugly, and a lot of times I think uh, there's perhaps um, a disincentive or perhaps people think you don't want to hear the bad news. You don't want to hear the negative. We absolutely need that. And the role of the outside strategic advisors, our outside trial counsel, is to get every bit of that on the table and for us to sift through it in a meaningful way to support those strategic decisions you referenced. If you don't do that, I really think nobody's doing their job and you're building these decisions on a flimsy foundation at best and it's dangerous activity. And so having strategic partners like the law firms we work with, in this example, John and his team is a critical importance. And I can only describe it again as a foundation upon which those strategic decisions are built. Both of you place a high value on your legal teams. Can you share some of the attributes that make a legal team successful? The team is what drives victory. Without the team, you're not going to have success in any big litigation. And to use one example, we recently were privileged to help handle the Esher litigation for Bayer. Esher is a medical device, and we worked on it along with several other incredible firms. Bill and his deputy for that case, Sarah Heineman, were incredibly adept at managing this large team, which is typical for products liability litigation when you have thousands upon thousands of cases in a dozen or more jurisdictions. You have a virtual law firm of many different actual law firms working together, collaborating. And Bill and Sarah were just incredible at managing these different lawyers from top-notch firms. And the one sort of lesson, um, well, something that I brought into it, and definitely this shows the importance of it, part of on a team is realizing that sometimes someone else should be shooting that ball, right? You shouldn't take every single shot. So in Esher, for instance, many of my partners handled the biggest oral arguments and court appearances and depositions. I had a team of all-stars and just to name a few, and I don't want to leave anyone out because the entire team was incredible, both at Sidley and at other firms, but just to mention a few that come to mind immediately, Elizabeth Curtin, Michelle Ramirez, Erica Maley, Alicia Deegan, Virginia Seitz. Um, it was incredible. It was great. It was a privilege to work with them and also work with the Bayer in-house team and all the law firms. Um, I just want to mention one thing in particular. Before the, the case settled, just to give one example of when someone else shot the ball, 
we um, keep tremendous victory on personal jurisdiction in the Illinois Supreme Court in the Rios case. And I didn't argue that case. One of my partners did it, Virginia Sites, and it was the right call that she did it, and she was incredible. We won it. Um, and that's going to help not just Bayer, but defendants, life sciences, companies around the country. Yeah, I think, John, you really capture it nicely. I'll just add very briefly, and, and John alluded to this, and, and we frequently do do this at, at Bayer, as other companies do, where we really have the luxury of working with the best of the best, and not only at Sidley and John's team, but many other firms. And it's kind of a requirement that they provide and operate in, in a team-centric approach. Um, we'll have different firms leading various different aspects from discovery to trial, to briefing, to settlement, uh, appeals, and it, and it all has to work and it all has to run like a well-oiled machine and it all has to serve the same objectives. And using this virtual format, I'm, I'm really proud to say, I think we get the best of the best because we attract the lawyers at each of the firms who are the best in those discrete areas. And it's, it's an amazing privilege for me and my colleagues to get to work in that kind of an environment. And quite frankly, my in-house colleagues as well, bring it all together who, again, because they have trial judgment, because they've been in those situations, they've been in those roles, those chairs, those trials, you really have to stitch it all together and put it together in a manner that uh, runs like a well-oiled machine, as I said, but actually yields uh, a collective cohesive result. And so um, it, it's not even a negotiable. It's not even a question. It must be a team-centric approach. It's the only way we get the best ideas. And quite frankly, the ideas end up being so much richer because of that collective input. So uh, I would just agree with you, John, and say I think it really works well. And to a person, uh, the firms embody this, and we're lucky to be a part of it. Switching topics, what advice can you share for achieving an understanding of a company's risk tolerance level? Listening and reading, right? The advice I give to understanding a company's approach is listening and reading. You have to know the company's business and where it stands in the current climate. A, current, a company's risk tolerance level is not static necessarily over time. It might vary over time. It might vary based upon the products at issue and the types of litigation. A company might want to settle case A, but have no desire to settle case B. And you have to be aware of what factors, and those factors are multifaceted. It's like 19 dimensional chess. You got to figure out what it is that might animate a client on what to settle, how to settle, why to settle. In short, you got to play smart and you got to play for the long term. Um, you want to win, but it's not just about winning that one case. It's about building that lifelong relationship. Yeah, and I would add, and John, I think your insights, particularly as you know, one of our lead strategic outside counsel is spot on. And I would just carry the one perspective from being in the chair in-house as well, which is you know, informing the company's risk tolerance or assessing what it is means as well, though, that the company has a full understanding of what risk it faces. And, 
one of the things I think that's of critical importance and the advice I would give to your listeners is, you know, almost like a, uh, an informed consent in a, in a medical practitioner context. Um, it's up to us as lawyers to really dimensionalize the risks of the issue, whatever it is, the particular litigation, the particular matter, um, so that there's a knowing understanding and assessment of the company's risk tolerance. Um, you know, again, as I mentioned earlier, Christina, in the conversation, there's a lot of elements to a company. You know, people think of it as just a name. But again, it's many functions, many people working very hard to do what they do and sincerely do in an effort to help people or deliver products that uh, safeguard health or prevent hunger. And you know, understanding the impact across that many dimensions of what risk there is a tolerance for and what risk there isn't a tolerance for is a tough thing. And so the first thing I would say is one, making sure that your listeners, and I, I hope this advice is is helpful to them, and it's just my own packaging to answer your question, is to really be sure they're dimensionalizing the risks that the company actually faces. What comes on with the risk of a loss? Just a money loss, uh, impugning an entire product line, um, questioning a company's compliance standards or scientific integrity, we all know these things carry over from uh, a simple lawsuit to grow in uh, extreme, extreme importance as that lawsuit is going through its life cycle. And so the first step is to be very, very diligent about discussing what the risks are, what can come out in the case or the trial, and how the company might suffer any kind of damage along the way, monetary, reputationally, or otherwise. The second piece then, of course, does follow, as John mentioned, for uh, really seeing what, amidst that potential risk element uh, variable I mentioned, the company can and will tolerate and uh, wants to defend. And, and I mentioned earlier in our Phillips Colon Health example, so much more at stake than just a particular claim on a package of a product is the integrity and the sufficiency of the company's efforts to engage with and put out products that are for the benefit of people's health. And being willing to take risk to defend that is a different calculus than losing money, for example. And so it behooves us, I think, as lawyers to make sure that we are really clearly getting an understanding of what is it that we're actually defending here and what is it that we're actually guarding against because that's what tolerates or informs the risk-taking decision, yes, no, plus, minus, et cetera. Uh, it's not a very easy uh, answer, I know. It's not a simple answer, but it's, I think, the diligence required of us as professionals in the roles we serve in our various uh, inside and outside counsel roles. Bill, I'd like to hear more about the differences that struck you the most when you first switched sides from outside to in-house counsel. Earlier in the podcast, you mentioned a heightened appreciation of your accountability to numerous stakeholders and cross-functional partners. Can you expand on that? Yeah. You know, when you move from an external law firm where there's almost a singular focus on the external, or at least you think there is, a question is posed or a task is given to the uh, lawyer when 
he or she is external. And there's almost, a, I would say working in a vacuum, but answer, uh, question asked, answer needs to be given. And when you move in-house, it's almost completely uh, uh, different and opposite because everything we do has an impact on other functions, you name it, from the development process to accounting uh, and everything in between. Um, and so it, it's very interesting and in trying to work in that environment. When I think when I first started in-house now, probably almost about 20 years ago, I, I remember thinking I was asked a question, I have to give the answer and that's it. And that's not at all it. If you don't take into account and work with those cross-functional partners, the richness and breadth of the issue is not fully understood. And therefore the advice is not as well informed. And in, again, working with um, my own uh, kind of historical review of myself, recognizing when I only answered from the litigator perspective, I was giving a litigator answer. And companies, life sciences companies, Bayer included, we're not in the business of litigation. We're in the business of helping people, of preventing hunger, of providing for healthcare. And so only once you take that broader perspective into account can your litigation advice, once it's informed by those functional partners, actually be more meaningful for the company. And so I would just tell the listeners and, and hoping it's relevant for them Take the time to be enriched by that broader perspective when you craft your legal advice, because it will actually be, number one, more accepted, number two, broader and more applicable to the company, and number three, more able to be implemented uh, once you give it. And it is quite rewarding when you see that happen. Were there any other differences that were particularly striking when you first switched sides? Uh, yeah, your clients are right there with you and um, can uh, walk up or knock on your door or jingle you for an immediate answer where when you were an outside lawyer, you know, you could kind of create space uh, between the question asked and the advice given. And uh, I remember being struck by when I first went in-house, um, how many times did I ever really have as an outside lawyer just a client appear at my door, ask a question and want an answer as they were standing there. Almost never, but it happens every minute of every day when you're working in-house. And I, I smile and almost uh, laugh a little bit when I reflect on it. Um, and it's funny because at first it was obviously a change and now it actually makes the job more rewarding and more exciting because you kind of have that desire to be immediately helpful. Are there times, of course, where you have to carve out and say, let me look into that and I'll come back to you, of course. Um, but, you know, you see your clients and you see the questions and you see the people who need you uh, through happenstance and you're accessible to them immediately. And so kind of having the ability to service and be there for them on a almost no turnaround basis was a pretty good change or shift if I remember it well. And it actually though makes it really rewarding because I think when you can share that guidance and give that insight and then the colleague who asked for it is able to move forward with that advice in hand, that's a pretty 
interesting day and you've done a lot of good for that broader objective that you asked about earlier, as opposed to just answering a narrow legal question. And so you sit down, you learn, you exchange, and you give them what they need. And it's, you almost get to see the product of what you're building in more real time than perhaps blasting off an answer into cyberspace and never really knowing what happens. And so it, it ends up being very, very rewarding. And I, I think I can speak for a lot of people in that same context. Well, now I'd like to ask both of you to ask each other a question. Bill, why don't you go first? Okay. Um, John, um, we talked through the podcast about significant victories you've delivered time and again for Bayer. And in support of you are a number of the best professionals in the field. Uh, I've had a chance to witness your team and your colleagues in action, and certainly my colleagues recognize them as the next generation of go-to lawyers. I've seen your leadership. I've seen you support and praise those colleagues as they develop and you share in their own successes. But maybe you could tell the listeners of the podcast, what else can you do to attract, cultivate, and retain top talent? And I ask not only for you to share that secret so people can use it for their own advantage, but maybe also for people in-house like me, because, you know, we're about building the relationship John and I have just discussed through the podcast, Christina, and I'm interested in it continuing beyond just one lawyer and building that succession plan that gets uh, a capable team in right behind John is really important to me because once John and his team learn the way we like things done, that pays dividends, not just through John's practice and, and, and timeline, but well beyond. And so, John, what do you do to um, attract, cultivate, and retain top talent so Bayer gets to enjoy this partnership for a good many years going forward? How'd I do, Christina? Excellent. <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> Let me first say that I'm really glad that this is not being video recorded because then everyone can see how much I'm blushing at overly kind words. I, I don't even know if it's fair what you said, but- You're bright red. I'm touched. Um, really, Bill, thank you. Uh, to answer your question, the honest answer is I recognized early on, when I left government 12 years ago and came to Sidley, I realized very quickly that I could not get Bill Bayer other clients, the results they deserve without having a rock star team. I'm not LeBron, right? I can't be the one man show. I'm not going to take every shot. I can't do it myself. I need to have other people to make it possible. And um, I've been very blessed. And, and part of it is just the blessing of having these people at my firm willing to help. I mentioned a whole bunch of the Easter litigation. Um, and then in addition, as Bill knows very well, there are other attorneys who are exceptional working on different cases, Ben Mundell, Josh Fugere, Jacqueline Fredette, Chris Eisworth, Morgan Branch, so many others. And the results we obtained would not be possible without them. Um, so what is, um, look, I, again, I can't say that there's a magic formula to this either, but when I came to Sidley 12 years ago, I, I did put a lot of thought into how can I get the best people at this amazing firm to work on my cases. And to that end, I started thinking a lot about management and human psychology. And I thought of three principles and I've tried to execute these principles as best I can. 
number one, if you want the best, if you want the next generation to help you, you have to convince them that they're working on your cases will help their careers, right? Two, the best way, perhaps the only way really to convince them of that fact is to actually help their careers, right? If you say a bunch of things, but then it shows you're not helping their careers, word gets around, there's a free market system at Sidley, people a lot of hot air. So the second thing is actually coming through um, with the, the conviction, trying to convince them, actually helping their careers. And then the third thing, the third principle, the best way to help their careers is to get them opportunities. To get them opportunities, court appearances, depositions, meetings with clients, helping them develop their skills. That actually helps their careers. Not just putting in a good word for them, not just writing an evaluation for them, but actually getting them the experiences that make them better attorneys long-term. And it's that last step which has actually proven the most difficult because some clients, not Bayer, some clients don't allow for significant delegation. They want to have the partners and perhaps the partners have been around for a while and done the dozens of arguments. They want that guy, that woman to handle the cases for them. But look, Bayer has been the absolute best in giving the next generation opportunities. And it comes from Bill and his team, his lawyers and the rest of the organization, I think, follow Bill's lead and recognize that to achieve the best results long term, not just in one case, but long term, is to give the opportunities for the next generation. So I had in mind my principles, but executing those principles would not have been possible without Bill, his mindset and what Bayer has done. John, do you want to ask a question now? Yeah. Um, look, I mean, this is something I've been wondering for a while, and thank you for giving me the chance to put Bill on the spot and get the answer to this. Anyone who's been following the legal press has recognized that Bill has one of the hardest jobs in the industry. In my view, he has the hardest job of any head of litigation of, of anyone I know. I mean, his docket is enormous. I don't know how he's able to, to handle it. And so my question for him is... What can outside counsel do to better represent Bayer and make his life easier? Um, great, great question, John. And, you know, I, I need to first just acknowledge and you're so kind to say, you know, I have that job, but um, and it's not feasible for me to list everybody, but I'll just do a quick listing. And uh, we've done that, I know, and taken your airtime, Christina, but I really think it's important for my colleagues to hear this. Um, Chris Guth, Sarah Heineman, Tracy Vinson, um, Larissa Eustace, Bart Whitley, uh, Molly Jones, Robin Buck, uh, Countess Price, Kirsten Savada, Etta Dolzer, uh, Max Tumel, Ann Trupas, Michelle Webbers, Anetta Bowers, Joan Greaves. These are paralegals, lawyers, uh, all on my team in the U.S. in three different cities and in Germany, who all have that same extraordinarily tough job. Uh, John outlines, and I hope I didn't forget anybody because I just did it really fast. Um, 
and so you know this i think is collectively and if i could speak without uh, appropriate supervision from that amazing group of professionals i just mentioned uh they're not here to rescue me or give me a lifeline i'll try to speak for them as well because we are a collective team and it's really a matter of working with us toward problem solving it and doing it early and often in kind of three main areas that I'll try to summarize very briefly. It's bringing us solutions and strategic advice. Uh, I think any lawyer can issue spot. I think any lawyer can raise problems. That doesn't help me and my colleagues whom I've listed at bringing forward uh, solutions for the company. And so we would really uh, believe, John, that outside counsel can better represent Bayer. And quite frankly, I hope, again, a value to other listeners, just have a relentless focus on bringing forward solutions. Even if it's not the best solution, it, it it's almost frustrating when I think you're sitting in our chairs to just have a heap of problems uh, scooped onto your desk uh, because odds are we already know those problems, but they don't really help. Uh, secondly, uh, we talked earlier about helping us assess cases and not wavering and sticking with what we have outlined, the strategy, and not wavering in the face of uh, once the case begins and there's a little chink in the armor, um, you know, continuing to advance what we agreed upon. And I think thirdly, um, we talked about winning and, you know, that's important and I think no doubt, but it's also um, finding ways to win in ways that are efficient, that don't put the company at increased risk. And I think sometimes, John, I've, we, we talked already about the elegance of big wins and small wins, but I'll just reemphasize it here as well. Getting an early resolution and helping with actual risk mitigation is the most meaningful thing that I think people in your chair can do. As I mentioned earlier, Bayer is not uh, in the business of litigation. Bayer is in the business of feeding people and of making medicines. And when we can maintain our focus on doing that for all of humanity, quite frankly, and the customers we serve, that's the joy of the company and that's what it wants to do. And so um, I think sometimes as lawyers, we think we have to carry everything forward, fight every fight, win every round of every fight. And there might be a more efficient, elegant conclusion that allows us to get back to our important mission. And we need not always see the full armor that we could or would deploy. And I think uh, John, you've done this and your team and uh, helping us do that in a manner that allows us the most efficient way of focusing on what we want to do as a company in the world's uh, problems is really the main thing um, that I think others uh, can do. And I think outside counsel helping find that magical um, balance between uh, continuing to fight versus efficient resolution is one of the best things an outside counsel can do for somebody in my chair or, or my colleagues' uh, chairs as well. Bill, you've been at Bear for a really long time. How does that longevity drive your collaborations with outside counsel and help in finding that magical balance you just mentioned? Well, I think, you know, and, and it's certainly both a luxury and a pleasure. And it allows me to have, I think, deeper insights 
into the company. And so as I kind of work with outside counsel, I think it lets me bring that broader perspective we talked about earlier in the call of the company's interests across a, a number of arenas and share that with, in this example, again, John and his team or other of our outside counsel and having the company's objectives, again, beyond the four corners of the litigation, but also to bring uh, the different competing perspectives or desires of what we want to achieve with a litigation that might not be apparent to an outside counsel who, again, as I think we talked about earlier, gets a case, the objective is almost singular win. Um, But there may be impacts on the company, the reputation, the uh, taking the needs of people uh, who otherwise have jobs at the company, but not supporting litigation and freeing them from not being in the litigation, but letting them do the important work they do and bringing that forward. And I think uh, another point to it all is it allows me to kind of think through the management needs and have a candor and openness with both outside counsel and uh, internally at the company so that I can say, hey, that's, that might, you might think that's the objective, but it's not. The company needs this or needs that out of this. And so I think what it really does, it helps inform that I can work with outside counsel who understand that and who don't get uh, narrowly focused just on one thing or the four corners of one case. And you know, our collective job is to get what's best for the company. And I think one point that my colleagues and I in-house embody is we genuinely want what's best for the company. Uh, everything doesn't have to filter through us or conform to just my idea. Um, if that's the case, then we're not benefiting from the collective input. And so it's to give and enjoy that long tenure I've had at the company and give license to the teams to air their views, not believe that they can't contradict either uh, my view or some other leader's view, but instead to genuinely put what's best on the table for the company. And it helps to really inform uh, the outside counsel view when you've been at the company a long time, as I'm uh, blessed to have been, to share that broad perspective because I've, I've grown up in the culture, so to speak. Uh, and immediately getting that to our outside counsel team so it can inform how we defend and what we do with the case, how we interact with the other functions, the internal company witnesses with management and the like, really allows us to yield the best collective result. And Sean, how has your government experience informed your role as outside counsel? It's actually funny you ask because government lawyers don't have clients. Right. Outside counsel, by definition, you have a client. Government lawyers don't have clients, at least not in the sense that we're talking about here, which is why I think many government lawyers face a learning curve when they enter private practice, because before they could do what they wanted to do, really, appeasing their supervisor or immediate boss. But now they have meaningful clients who um, make the final calls and can hire someone else if the attorney doesn't do what he or she should be doing. Um, But look, one thing I did learn in government is that many government litigators don't like to litigate. 
they like to call themselves litigators, but they don't litigate. They like to settle. So if you and your client have resolve, you ultimately can defeat them because these litigators don't like to litigate. The other thing I'll say is I might have a more, we'll call absolutist view of how government attorneys should behave. And lawyers in the Department of Justice, first and foremost, should be upholding justice. Their job should not be trying to get the biggest headline or the biggest head on the wall. And too often I see, and not just with Bayer, but with other clients, that government attorneys are being a bit too aggressive and don't understand that even if they're issuing just a demand for information or a subpoena or something to a company, they don't understand the consequences of that in terms of distracting the company from what it should be doing. In the case of Bayer, saving lives, feeding people, helping people, developing medicines, it's a distraction. It's a distraction to the lawyers. It's a distraction to the business people. And there's also an expense. So when I see government lawyers do that, um, I have a, a reaction to it. Um, look, in the end, I don't think I'll be getting any Christmas card from government lawyers, but I will commend Bill because I've seen Bill more than anyone in the face of this. And he recognizes, you've heard firsthand, the distraction that litigation can be. There's not in the business of litigating but meeting after meeting with, doesn't matter what the agency is, DOJ, FTC, you name it, Bill is the most gracious and understanding and convincing person in the room. Um, I know that probably somewhere deep down inside, he has some pretty severe thoughts, but he's always able to communicate effectively, passionately, but very politely with the government lawyers. And I mean, I'm just overwhelming, overwhelmingly impressed each time I see Bill work is magic. Now you talk about getting read on a video. <laughs> good, good thing. Good thing it's audio. And finally, this is a question directed to both of you. What, if any, changes do you foresee for the in-house outside litigation council dynamic in the near future? I'll just jump in, but um, I'd want to hear from Bill on this one. Look, my sense is there's going to be more movement to alternative fee arrangements, which build in incentives for collaboration and shared risk. I think collaboration is key and any kind of structure, fear otherwise, that joins the inside and outside council arm in arm is gonna be most effective. Yeah, I agree. And I think as well, um, particularly with cost pressures um, that quite frankly, are always top of mind in, in a company, and, and they should be, because when we're spending money on litigation, that arguably isn't going toward creating the next innovation in feeding people or taking care of people's health. And so there's always going to be a responsible cost pressure. And I think um, when there's kind of consolidation or efforts to decrease litigation spend, and there always are, and I, I that's part of my job and role as well. You have to find ways, and I think some of the changes I foresee happening um, are ways that you build even stronger, and this is an opportunity to be clear, I think for some of your listeners, to build those meaningful relationships so that uh, counsel, external counsel are viewed uh, as, as integral partners and uh, position themselves to get maybe a bigger volume of business, but at creative uh, fee structures. 
And I think John hit the nail on the head as well about um, built-in incentives for collaboration, risk, and, and even outcomes, quite frankly. Um, I think a lot of those um, success uh, measures or, or success bonuses, if you can call them that, or whatever is uh, kind of breeding togetherness in terms of the inside house outside council dynamic, it actually puts us as stronger partners together. And I know a lot of external law firms might not like to hear about, you know, cost pressures and reductions in income. But I think if you are a client of choice, and I certainly hope we are, and I, I believe we are based not only on our portfolio of litigation, which is uh, cutting edge and of interest, but also the great professionals who I mentioned earlier who work with me internally. And then the novelty of, of the issues really make us an interesting partner for external counsel. And then if there are ways to solidify that in a more sustainable, uh, more resource uh, sensitive way, again, alternative fee agreements, I think John mentioned a good one, sharing in uh, upside and downside uh, budgeting uh, proficiency and the like. I see those as all coming on the horizon even more in the near term. It's no secret with what's going on in the world in terms of the economic situation of a lot of companies. And then I do think though that the bright spot of that is it breeds togetherness because we'll have to find ways to still get it done in creative, collaborative ways. And it provides opportunities so that the best in the class uh, clients and law firms are there for the partnering. So I kind of have an optimistic view as John kindly uh, alluded to earlier and when I might have blushed slightly, but I, I do think those pressures will be there, but they also breed great opportunity. Well, Bill and John, thank you so much for your time. Thank, thank you. you. Great to be with you. Thank you for listening to the 44th Street Podcast of the New York City Bar Association. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. Find more City Bar podcasts and program audio on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, or at our website at nycbar.org. This podcast was produced by Eli Cohen.